Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to visit primed.com slash podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. Michelle is a 42-year-old restaurant manager who comes in for follow-up of her chronic low back pain. She has had this for about five years. It started following a motor vehicle accident. She has had a full evaluation previously, and MRIs have found no structural problem that can cause her persistent pain. The pain ranges from a 5 out of 10 on good days to 7 or 8 most of the time. The pain is often worse when things are very hectic at the restaurant, and she feels like she does too much. She does very little besides work because the pain bothers her in both social and other settings. She has had physical therapy and seen a chiropractor without any benefit. Currently, she is taking ibuprofen, 800 milligrams, three times a day, and duloxetine, 60 milligrams a day. She has told you she does not want anything like an opioid to help control the pain, but occasionally uses cannabis at bedtime to help her to sleep. She's frustrated how the pain has taken over her life and looks for something new. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and the Executive Editor of Dynamed. Hi, Alan. Hi, Frank. Chronic back pain, a hugely frustrating topic. Um, What's the current standards for treating chronic low back pain in the community? Well, the problem with chronic low back pain is that because there's nothing that works on a reliable basis, there's a wide variety of things that are tried. And often it seems like for patients, it's trial and error uh, to get something that helps. Uh, Things to think about for it would include non-pharmacologic strategies, such as exercise therapy, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, spinal manipulation, such as chiropractic treatments or osteopathic manipulation, Tai Chi, yoga, and acupuncture. All these have been tried with varying degrees of success. You can also consider uh, pharmacologic interventions. Obviously, non-steroidals are often used right from the get-go, but they can be continued. And you can get the SNRIs, such as duloxetine, if uh, non-pharmacologic therapy fails. Um, Opioids are considered a treatment of last resort. We all know that they're fraught with risks of side effects, dependence, and potentially abuse. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a common problem, and and we have good guideline data. Nonetheless, it's really frustrating for us as providers, but it's also pretty frustrating for for Michelle. Um, What what about her perception? It seems like this is involving all of her life. She's still able to work, but she's starting to become socially isolated because the pain bothers her so. So we know that uh, different patients deal with pain differently, and some of this is due to the patient's perception of what the pain means. For some patients, pain means there is something wrong, and the inability of uh, clinicians to identify what the problem is does little to reassure the patient that everything is okay because their body keeps telling them that everything is definitely not okay. Often, patients interpret a well-intentioned explanation that the imaging tests are normal as, I was told there was nothing wrong with me. This can lead to adversarial interactions and changing healthcare providers in the hopes of finding a different answer. 
We also know that fear and anxiety can amplify the perception of pain, and not having a clear explanation for why the pain persists can reinforce the experience of the pain itself. You get this worsening feedback loop where the patient has anxiety about the pain, that increases the pain, which then increases their anxiety further, which increases their pain further, and the uncertainty of what does the pain mean, you know, is there something uh, fundamentally wrong, uh, all this feeds into itself. So eventually the pain and the concern about what is causing the pain become all-encompassing and the situation becomes self-perpetuating. That is very true. That self-perpetuating cycle is, is very, very worrisome. Uh, there's been some recent literature about a process called pain reprocessing therapy. Can you tell me about it? So pain reprocessing therapy is an approach that teaches the patient to reconceptualize the chronic pain as a brain-generated false alarm. Pain reprocessing therapy shares some concepts and techniques with existing treatments for pain and with cognitive behavioral therapy approach for treating things like panic disorder. There was a randomized trial done recently of 151 patients with chronic low back pain. A little more than half were female and the average age was about 41 and they all had pain of at least four out of 10. The average duration of pain was about nine or 10 years and uh, they were randomized. This is a fairly interesting trial. They were randomized to pain reprocessing therapy an open-label placebo injection of saline or usual therapy. And by open-label placebo injection, it means the patients were told, we are going to give you a placebo. We're going to give you an injection of saline and it doesn't have any expected benefit. Um, and yet uh, you know, this way, no one was fooled into thinking they were being given a therapy when, when they weren't. The pain reprocessing therapy group had a one hour telemedicine visit that included education about the difference between peripheral pain and central pain, the likely contribution of each, and a review of all their spinal imaging. This was then followed by a one-hour counseling visit by someone who was trained in pain, re pain reprocessing therapy, and this happened twice a week for four weeks. Just to elaborate on that a little bit, the techniques included giving uh, personalized evidence for the presence of centralized pain, guiding a reappraisal of pain sensations while they were seated and in different uh, postures and movements, techniques addressing uh, the psychosocial threats, what kind of emotions might be at play that were potentially amplifying the pain, and techniques to increase positive emotions and self-compassion. The average pain level was a little over four at the start of the trial. At the end of treatment, the average pain in the pain reprocessing group was 1.2, compared to 2.8 with placebo and 3.1 in usual care. And that was a significant difference in favor of the uh, PRT group. The, these pain differences were um, maintained at 12 months uh, of follow-up. So, you know, there is clearly some evidence of some benefit. I think the thing to keep in mind is that four out of 10 is relatively modest in terms of the amount of pain being reported. Uh, and I think most of us are often seeing patients who whose average pain level is 11 out of 10. And, you know, this is what uh, we often have to deal with. I love the way they did this study. And I love the fact that the interventions not burdensome. But how do we get someone in our communities to get this sort of treatment? Well, this is relatively new, but 
uh, one of the things that I took note in the paper was that the researchers were from a very wide geographic area when they were collaborating on this. And in fact, two of them have written a book about this, and one of them's in, I think, out in Boulder, and the other's in New York. Uh, places other researchers on this project were from included uh, California, Illinois, Michigan, Maryland, Missouri, uh, and New Hampshire, also in Massachusetts. And so I think you're going to see more of this. There's uh, training that's available for continuing education for people to uh, become uh, therapists who can uh, perform this properly. I think one of the things to keep in mind is that initial visit where they're setting the stage was an hour visit. And a lot of us don't have the luxury of having an hour with the patient to go over uh, not only all their past medical history and their, their films and everything that's been done, but also helping them start to understand different types of pain and what it means when you have pain, but there's no obvious structural abnormalities. So I think, I think there's a big potential for this to be uh, more widely available in the future, but we're gonna have to think about how we incorporate it into the healthcare system. I gotta tell you, if, if I have to book an hour once a week to try to help my chronic pain patients do better, just to relieve my own frustration, I'm totally in. Alan, this is a great paper. This is practice changing, and I hope this becomes a standard across the country very soon. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. For your patients with chronic low back pain, consider psychological therapy that incorporates changing patients' beliefs about the causes of their pain and its significance. Join us next time when we talk about the new guidelines concerning concussion in teens. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcasts, and see you next week.